the Linux community is screaming in their heads right now. (laughs) They always are, Cody. (laughs) Welcome to Tech Tales. I'm Corbin Davenport. And I'm Cody Toombs. And today we're talking about Project Star Trek, which was a project at Apple to bring the Mac operating system and platform and everything that you'd expect from a Mac to PCs. That's fun. To boldly go where no Mac has gone before? That's literally why they named it Project Star Trek. (laughs) You already guessed it. Good job. I'm... I can't claim to be proud that one <laughs> that one really felt like it was set out there to to be an easy hit the Apple yeah the Apple engineers were not very innovative on that one but that's fine so have you heard of this at all are you familiar with this uh okay so if it's what I think it is I know a little bit about it not a lot and I definitely didn't know it was called Star Trek okay so what I know of it was the effort that they made to basically license out macOS to uh, the PC market so that third-party companies could could put it on computers. If that's the same thing, I I know some. <laughs> okay. That is this. So okay. that's good. So before I talk about Project Star Trek directly, I want to give kind of a brief overview of what the pc landscape was like in the early 1990s and for this i'm only talking about ibm pc compatibles or like what what we call pcs today there is obviously still like i think atari was still around there was like the amiga that kind of stuff or just we're just talking about pcs here most pcs at the time were running microsoft's disk operating system or ms dos for short and that was kind of the very early computing where you're typing all your commands but windows was becoming increasingly popular the first version of windows came out in 1986 i think or 1985 and it was starting to really ramp up in the early 1990s but it wasn't an operating system like it is today it was just a very large dos program so it ran on top of dos i like to think of it as uh sort of a component of a ui or rather it it was the ui component that we would now associate with being part of the operating system it just came in a separate box that you had to pay for as a completely separate thing yeah and importantly there was software that would only work if you had windows so even though microsoft dos was the most popular operating system for pcs there were other dos systems that were developed by other companies and most of them were designed to be compatible with MS-DOS to some degree. One of those was DR-DOS, which stands for Digital Research DOS. And that was initially developed by Digital Research, and then a company called Novell bought it. And at this point in time, it was like the main competitor to MS-DOS. It was almost perfectly compatible with MS-DOS software, so... That was like the only other really option if you wanted something that could run most software designed for PCs, but didn't want to run Microsoft's thing for whatever reason. So in 1982, 
Microsoft released Windows 3.1, which was a massive success. We've talked about it in a couple different episodes of Tech Tales because it's, it's kind of a important milestone to Microsoft kind of taking control of the whole PC industry. One might even call it a pre-pivotal moment. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely ramping up in intensity, but like Windows 3.0 was big, 3.1 was bigger, and then Windows 95 was like the moment where no one else can compete anymore, basically. More or less, yeah. So even though it's it's going to be the future, at this point, it's still running on top of DOS. But Microsoft initially blocked Windows 3.1 from running on top of DR-DOS. So two executives at Microsoft had an email exchange that gets published later. This happens in September of 1991. And it says, quote, It's pretty clear we need to make sure Windows 3.1 only runs on top of MS-DOS or an OEM version of it. And, quote, The approach we will take is to detect DR6 and refuse to load. The error message should be something like invalid driver interface, quote. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, so they're just like planning like <laughs> screw DR DOS. Let's let's make Windows not run on it. I want to call it shady, but at this point, it I'm not sure it holds up versus most of the other shady stuff that happened in that time period. Well, it's not even like it's shady in the way that it's uh, it's like an anti-competitive business move. But shady, I think, also implies like it's it's sort of like really secret or like something you yeah. wouldn't expect and this is not that yeah, they're not being they're not being subtle at all this is a no. straight up middle finger no microsoft ended up building several methods into windows 3.1 for detecting and blocking dr dos including code in the disk caching utility smart drive that would cause that program to fail on dr dos and there is also a version check in the setup program for windows 3.1 if DRDOS was running, it would say, quote, the XMS driver you have installed is not compatible with Windows. You must remove it before setup can successfully install Windows, quote. So in all of these error messages, like it's not telling you you're running DRDOS run something else. They're like intentionally vague. These are intentionally not telling you what Microsoft is doing here. So to go back to another email chain from Microsoft in September of 1991, these are two people talking about IBM working with DRDOS. And they're going to mention NetWare, which is another product from Novell who's making DRDOS. So just as that background. Brad Silverberg said, quote, After IBM announces support for DRDOS at Comdex, it's a small step for them to also announce they will be selling NetWare Lite, maybe sometime soon thereafter, but count on it. We don't know precisely what IBM is going to announce, my best hunch is that they will offer DRDOS as the preferred solution for the Intel 286 and OS2 for 386. They will also probably continue to offer MS-DOS at $165, while DRDOS is at $99. DRDOS has problems running Windows today, and I assume we'll have more problems in the future, quote. And in that exchange, another executive, Jim Alchin, says, quote, You should make sure it has problems in the future, smiley face quote <laughs> okay <laughs> they're so explicit about it <laughs> yeah i that was that was part of it like the first mention of it having problems i i, I kind of heard a vague like implied nudge nudge wink wink right. sort of 
But then that reply, which uh, also raises a question. When the hell did we start using smiley faces again? I thought it came like a five to five years after that. So all I can take from that is for once in history, a corporate executive was actually ahead of a trend. He was hip with the kids. Yes. Now it is the the old style smiley face where it's oh, well, the eyes yeah, and then the dash for the nose and then the mouth, yeah. but it's still yeah. It's it's very explicit. And Cody, can you guess where these emails might have come from when they might have been published? Oh, it's obviously the uh Microsoft versus uh Netscape or the like the antitrust trial against Microsoft. Yeah, yeah it's that one. Yeah. It's very funny. So all those changes that they were talking about, the the checks in Windows to detect DRDOS, that was all present in the beta releases of Windows 3.1. In the final release of Windows 3.1, all that code was still there, but it was all turned off. So in the end, Microsoft didn't do this on a large scale, but Novell wasn't stupid. Like they knew Microsoft would try this again and then they wouldn't have Windows compatibility, and then it would be really hard to sell DRDOS. I do I do vaguely remember the existence of DRDOS back in the day, and I kid you not, uh, myself and several other people, we did refer to it as Dr. DOS. <laughs> I'm dead serious. And uh, at that time, it, not everybody, like I knew what it was, but a lot of people actually confused it thinking that it was more of like a diagnostic program for MS-DOS. <laughs> and as a result, most people weren't interested in it because it's like, why do I need this diagnostic thing if it seems to be working all the time? Yes, this this was their branding accidentally just wrecked them. That's pretty funny. So if they couldn't rely on Windows then Novell still needed some kind of desktop environment for DRDOS, because that's obviously where the industry was going. When they acquired Digital Research, which is where DRDOS came from, Digital Research was also working on the GEM project, which is short for Graphics Environment Manager. Do you remember GEM at all? Uh, okay, I definitely remember the name. I don't know for sure that I ever checked it out in any real way. Um... But part of me thinks that I know where this is headed. Okay. I can't think of the name of it, but there is there was another thing I do remember being in existence, and I think Jim might have been the precursor. Anyway, keep going. So Novell had this gem environment that digital research worked on primarily during the 1980s. This was a pretty old project. It's primarily best known as being the default desktop on the Atari ST computers, but it was ported to a bunch of other early home computers. I will send you a screenshot of what it looks like. There you go. Hello, Mac. <laughs> it does look a lot like Mac, yeah. Or early yeah, Mac. Yeah, I've definitely seen this before. This was ported to DOS and a bunch of other platforms, so it was on PC at some point. So Novell already had this, but it was pretty old. So they started working on modernizing it to make it competitive with Windows, and they would sell this with DR DOS as like their answer to Microsoft Windows. However, 
Novell's legal department was worried that working on Jim again could attract lawsuits from Apple. Because Apple, there was there was previously some legal stuff between digital research and Apple back when Jim was new. So they, they were worried that if they started work on it, they would get more legal stuff from Apple. And that wouldn't be very fun. So they actually just gave up on that. Hmm. But after that, Daryl Miller, who was the vice president of marketing at Novell, made a proposal to Apple CEO John Scully about porting macOS to Intel hardware. So basically, like, if they couldn't make their own desktop environment based on Jim, they were like, well, why don't we just go to Apple? <laughs> like, <laughs> does Apple want to help us? And he was actually interested because he wasn't a big fan of Apple being in the hardware business. Like, it was a kind of a tough market to be in. You know, he was looking at Microsoft, which was making buckets of money. And he was like, why don't we just be like Microsoft? It's important to remember this is not the macOS we know today. This is good old, uh, old school macOS. Yeah, yeah. This is 1992 Mac, so like barely supporting color Mac. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So Apple officially started work on this project in February of 1992 with the code name of Star Trek, because as Cody said, it would boldly go where no Mac had gone before which was a reference to the, the opening monologue in Star Trek. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. This is kind of interesting. Intel CEO at the time, Andy Grove, also supported the project because he was kind of worried that if things kept going the way they were going, that Microsoft would have too much power in the PC market, which ended up happening. So yeah. he was, yeah, Golly, not wrong there. He may have, he may have had his, uh, he may have had a good sense there. Yeah. So work on this project started in February of 1992, but the actual development process, as far as I can tell, didn't start until about the summer of that year with four engineers from Novell and 14 engineers from Apple. So at this point, the Mac operating system was mostly written in assembly code for the Motorola 6800 processors. That's what Macs were using at the time. And... Mm -hmm. They needed to be as fast as possible, so you write that in assembly. Now, PCs, of course, do not use those processors. They are using Intel's x86 or, or clones of the x86 architecture. All the assembly code in the Mac system had to be rewritten just automatically. So that was a lot of work on its own. But most of the interface elements were written in the Pascal programming language, and that didn't need to be rewritten, really. Well, they had to rewrite the compiler, but... yeah. Yeah, much less work. There was also another issue where Mac computers at the time stored a lot of the operating system in ROM chips in the computer. And they kind of thought about maybe making some kind of board for the PCs that would have that ROM chip in them, but that would be kind of expensive. So they implemented this feature in the system where the ROM was actually loaded in software at startup 
which is how Max much later in the future would work as well. So that was kind of interesting. Because there's not a whole lot of public information about this, most of the source on this comes from like one or two books uh, written by people who talk to some of the engineers and like the managers on this stuff. So I don't know if the plan was for this to run on top of DRDOS, like Windows was doing at the time, or if it would be its own unified product where DOS would just be a component, like like Windows 95 was eventually going to be, right? Where it was one single product. But I did find a report from 1993 that said it would have been compatible with DOS applications. So some kind of DOS layer or compatibility was was apparently in the works. And I also don't have any screenshots or really anything to show from this. None of that is public either, as far as I can tell. But all the reports and, and sources and everything say this just looked exactly like Mac System 7. So not not really anything specific to show there. Sounds about right. So this project had a goal of having a functional demo ready by, I think it was like Halloween. That was when Apple said they wanted something. So by October of 1992, they actually met that deadline. They had a demo version of the operating system running on just a regular PC compatible. And actually, the team had gone further than having just a base demo working. They had ported the entire QuickTime player to the system, as well as the QuickDraw GX library, which was how Mac apps rendered a lot of graphics stuff at the time. So they had like a pretty decently complete version of this by October. All right. And for those that haven't listened to the the Road to Mac OS series that we did in the past, it's worth pointing out. Just just go back and listen if you haven't, or I'll, I'll short version the important part here. This is a period in time where Apple really was terrible at completing any project. Yes. They basically couldn't do it at all, ever. That, like, repeated almost phenomenal levels of failure. Meanwhile, 14 developers from Apple and four from Novell are like, yeah, we got this. And and they achieve something that is way more difficult. Well, I shouldn't say way more difficult, but at least on par in difficulty with all of the other stuff that they had done in the past. Or tried to do. Yeah. Yeah, they did a they did a good job, definitely. So now I'm gonna send you a quote from the book Apple Confidential, which is a source for a lot of this information, and you can you can read it for us. Okay. Let's see. Now it was up to the team leader, Chris DeRossi and Rogan Heinen, VP of Software Engineering, to convince Apple's executive staff that Star Trek was worth pursuing. On December 4th, they presented the Star Trek prototype to the assembled staff, many of whom couldn't believe their eyes. From all outward appearances, here was the fabled Mac OS running on an Intel computer. Star Trek had managed to penetrate deep behind enemy lines. Fred Forsyth, head of Apple's manufacturing business and hardware engineering, saw his career flash before his eyes. If Apple was successful in getting the Mac OS to run on Intel, demand for Apple's hardware would likely slump. Furthermore, the company was committed to moving the Macintosh to the PowerPC, and the Star Trek project was perceived to be a threat to that effort as well. 
How would it look to partners IBM and Motorola if Apple was porting the Mac OS to Intel processors at the same time it was collaborating on the PowerPC? Over these objections, Heinen was given the go-ahead to have his team attack the detail work to make Star Trek fully functional. So that's another thing we talked about in the Road to OS X series and the IBM OS 2 series is in the mid 90s apple was apple's main attempt to compete with the pc was working on this power pc platform with ibm and motorola and the idea was that apple ported the mac os to this architecture and then they ended up using those power pc chips for their macs and then motorola was manufacturing the power pc chips and all three of the companies work to license that architecture and to a lesser extent the Mac system to other companies. So like, you know, another company could make a Mac clone that's like fully licensed and everything. And that was like their attempt to compete with the PC in, in the 90s. So that was going on at the same time as this Project Star Trek, which is just porting the Mac to actual IBM, you know, compatible PCs. I know that that might be kind of confusing, but like that's the, the this is a very confusing time. <laughs> <laughs> well, they had they recognized that there was some some value in what they had already built. They knew that much, but they couldn't figure out which direction to go, so they tried to go in all of them. And but all of their efforts were not quite enough. Yeah. So the team working on Project Star Trek received bonuses of $15,000 to $25,000 for their work, and they were sent on a paid vacation to Cancun, Mexico. Yay. Uh, cheers. Yeah. Don't drink the water. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So while they were on vacation, Apple and Novell were left to decide what to do next. And actually, in December of 1992... They reportedly discussed a merger, which is interesting. So I've got a article from the Baltimore Sun by Lee Gomez. Go Gomes? I'm not sure. It's like Gomez, but with an S. From December 9th of 1992. And I'm going to force you to read this one too. Talks between Apple's president, John Scully, and Novell's president, Ray Norda, have been a closely held secret known at the two companies only by an elite group of senior executives. But information about the discussions was provided by a person in the financial community with contacts at both companies. There is no guarantee that the negotiations will succeed. Exploratory merger talks, not uncommon among high-technology firms, often fail to produce an agreement. But if nothing else, the discussions show the seriousness with which both companies take the threat of Microsoft Corporation and its continued dominance of the computer software world. The logic behind an Apple Novell merger stems from two marketplace realities. As a provider of desktop computers, Apple has not had the success it wanted in penetrating computing's largest market, the corporate computing world, which buys tens of millions of machines a year and which has a propensity towards systems designed by IBM. Second, that corporate world is increasingly interested in connecting systems into computer networks. The marketplace for networks, which involve huge and complex software programs, is dominated by Novell. 
An Apple Novell team-up would allow the combined companies to become a potent force by selling Apple's highly praised, easy-to-use computers with the advanced networking and other communication software features associated with Novell. I love this article because it's it's pretty much identical to something that would be written today for two companies merging, except once you get to the bit about companies becoming increasingly interested in networks. Uh-huh. <laughs> this newfangled thing where we plug two computers together. Wow. Oh man, if you grew up if you grew up a couple decades earlier, it, you'd you'd be looking at this and going, "Oh yeah, that those times that was a thing because do i remember when modems before modems had become even like common or or like a a normal part of computers oh man the idea of being able to connect to another computer was that was some wild stuff and then like three years later it was just normal yeah <laughs> there, that there was a very fast transition there so even though there's a lot of excitement around this from executives and the programmers supposedly did a really good job and there's even talks of a merger i don't know how far those got you know like the article said like talks happen a lot but there's not a lot of mergers in the end even though all this is seemingly going pretty well apple and novell start running into roadblocks with project star trek and the main one is just that they have a really tough time selling this to PC manufacturers because at the time, most of them had licensing deals with Microsoft to sell Windows on their computers, right? Like you'd buy a computer and it would come with MS-DOS and it would come with Windows. Most of those deals required the manufacturers to pay Microsoft based on just how many computers they sold. It didn't matter what fraction of those computers came with Windows, the, the important number was like, you have to pay Microsoft X amount of dollars for every computer you sell. So when Apple goes to, you know, Compaq and Dell and all these other companies, they're not really interested because they would essentially be paying double for their licensing on their computers because they have to give money to Microsoft regardless. And now Apple is saying, wouldn't you also like to give us money? at the same time and that's a hard mm-hmm. sell and they keep running into this problem supposedly they even they even show this to dell they talked to michael dell specifically and he was like this is really cool but i can't use it unless it's free mm-hmm. because like yeah like that <laughs> you know when microsoft is allowed to make these like really anti-competitive agreements like this is this is the intended result This is also why IBM didn't get very far with OS2 beyond its own computers, because OS2 was happening at the same time, and they were running into the same issue there. The Linux community is screaming in their heads right now. (laughs) They always are, Cody. (laughs) Yes, yes, that's true. Software might have been an issue, too. I couldn't find anything that mentioned if this was going to run existing Mac software. Like, it would have to be at some level emulated um, because, you know, yeah, previous Mac software, software was compiled specifically for for that uh, hardware architecture, right. they would not have run. And yeah, yeah. Um, at that stage, I don't think they, I don't think they could have delivered emulation in a reasonably performant way. 
Not to say that performance was something they were particularly good at at that moment in time. Yeah, I don't know if they had any plans for any kind of compatibility layer, which would have been really important because a lot of the value of the Mac platform back then, as it is now, is the software built for it. And at this time, like you're just starting to get a lot of the Mac applications in a good state on Windows. So like Mac still has a pretty good advantage there. Even like Microsoft Office, like that all started on the Mac first. There was Word for Mac before there was a Word for Windows. That all being said, when you consider that a partnership with Novell would have been factored in here and it, they would have been tar targeting corporate environments, the the key there might have been that they really just needed to get a maybe a dozen or so really important applications built and after that a, a lot of it would either just be built for them or it would be a thing that lived in the corporate environment and eventually work its way into consumer yeah and even going back to the microsoft emails like novell's big product besides drdos at the time was this netware suite which was like a bunch of services for computer networks like if that was on there that might have helped a lot yeah so I, I don't know if there was any kind of plan for compatibility that might have been an issue and also just there would have been the general issue where this would have turned apple into another microsoft basically but microsoft was already a really good microsoft <laughs> right like i don't i don't really know if they could have been a good competitor there because you know, even if you take out those anti-competitive agreements, which absolutely helped propel Windows into the place it is today, like Windows was also just becoming a really, really popular product. And it's hard to displace the top product in a market. Like you mentioned before, Apple had such a difficult time with any kind of product strategy in the early and mid 90s. So like I don't I don't really know if this would have worked out even if there hadn't been the other roadblocks in place because Apple was just so poorly managed at this time. Yeah, it's it's hard to say how it could have gone, but at least if they had if they didn't have the other issues in place, yeah, they could have still failed, but uh at least they would have stood a chance. And they yeah. did have I, I, very realistically, they did have a market that would have been keen on this kind of a product. I mean, we are talking about most people had no idea how to work a computer. So the idea of handing them something as simple to use as Mac OS, assuming it was still simple to use, that would have been really, really attractive for the for the notion of handing handing or putting computers out into an office environment it's the same as why corporate environments today kind of look at chrome os as a thing that might be attractive because you want to be able to just give your employees something that they don't have to have computer knowledge to use they just have to be trained on the specific pieces of software and windows was objectively not that good at this yeah i mean it was better honestly it was better then than it is today but it was still not very good yeah, and like macOS had a lot of technical faults throughout its history before we got macOS X finally in 2001, but the design of it was always really good. Like there's a reason why early Mac was 
the reference for Windows and OS2 and almost every other attempt to make a desktop environment because like it was pretty good. And of course, like Mac itself was was modeled after, you know, stuff Xerox worked on and so on. But like that was that was still kind of the gold standard. Yeah. Well, Apple, I mean, we've we've seen it time and time again. We've talked about it over the years, like Apple had the infamous HIG, the human interface guidelines. And I mean, this is a thing that basically stemmed from the idea that they wanted a common interface that had a very simple to understand metaphor for everything people were already used to. So, yeah, of course, it, it this was the thing that would be easy for people to approach. Not to say yeah. Windows didn't obviously adopt a lot of it. And Windows was the source of plenty of things, too. It's not like Apple originated everything. But no, they originated almost nothing. As a matter of fact, <laughs> yeah, actually, fair point. Yeah, <laughs> they they didn't originate most of it, but they they were better at fine tuning this metaphor yeah. than other companies were. And as as much as a lot of people are familiar with things from Windows, the initial like think back to that time period, Windows was not as easy to understand up front for a lot of people. It asked you to make bigger mental jumps than mac os did yeah so all that was either issues that apple was already running into or might have eventually run into there was also the problem where roger heinen who was helping lead the project actually left apple at the beginning of 1993 to go work at microsoft <laughs> <laughs> so that was another issue wow how many times have we heard that be an issue lately oh yeah such and such person just they ran the thing and then they left and yep. lo and behold company loses interest in trying to, to trying to do this thing so because of all that project star trek was eventually canceled i don't know of like a specific date or time frame when apple gave up on it i'm sure it was probably just a gradual thing with all that building up also i believe in 1993 or 1994, Apple got a new CEO. Uh, so that probably, you know, changed priorities a bit too, but uh, eventually it died. So that's the end of the story for Project Star Trek, but it's not the end of the story for everything else around it. Microsoft eventually released Windows 95 in 1995, and this was a fully integrated operating system now. The DOS part and the Windows part were no longer really separate. Uh, technically, you could still run the DOS part on its own, but like you, you couldn't run the Windows part on top of anything else anymore. Okay, um, yeah, I'll agree on that. Yeah, <laughs> if you ran Windows ninety five in the in its early days, like when it first came out, you could very much still feel and tell every bit that this was running DOS underneath. They just took away, they took away the part where you had a command line pop up when the computer first booted. They took away a lot of the things that were immediate, like inner, they took away the interaction with the command prompt, but they still left all the operating system aspects in place. Yeah, it's just tucked away now. 
But yeah, like it couldn't run on top of DRDOS anymore, just like they had attempted with Windows 3.1 and now was actually happening with 95. So that wasn't good news for Novell. In December of 1996, Apple announced that it was going to acquire Next. And after that completed, they used the company's Next Step operating system as the foundation for Mac OS X. And if you want to know about that, go listen again to the Road to OS X series where we talk about all of this. And Cody's there too. Yes. So Next Step was actually already working on x86 PCs when Apple bought it. And some of the initial builds of like Apple's early versions of, of what would become OS X were actually available for x86 PCs. But eventually they stopped doing that, and the final release of Mac OS X in 2001 was only for Apple's PowerPC Macs. So pretty early in the process, Apple focused entirely just on their Macs. Apple was actually still maintaining the x86 support, and they had like internal x86 builds of a lot of popular apps for Mac that they kept working on as like a backup like if PowerPC ever went down the toilet, which eventually it did. Uh-huh. So Apple announced in June of 2005 that it was going to start making Macs with Intel x86 processors. So the macOS platform was actually officially available for x86 at this point. Now, it still wasn't intended for normal PCs, there was a whole, of course, there was a whole like Hackintosh community that was created around the idea of making it work on, on normal PCs. So it wasn't really what Project Star Trek was intending at all. But in, in kind of a roundabout way, there was eventually Mac OS on x86, mm-hmm. just for very different reasons. And a decade later, and had nothing to do with the original <laughs> effort. Yeah, that's kind of the whoops, we stumbled. Hey, here's that thing that we said would happen a while back. We totally intended it, right, guys? Yeah. Throughout all that time, Novell was not doing great, surprisingly. They started a period of decline in the 1990s after, you know, Windows had kind of pushed DRDOS out of the market. And even on the corporate side where they had like Novell Netware, this this networking stack, that was also being pushed out by Microsoft because Microsoft had Windows NT and all the software built around using NT on servers and, and having them communicate with PCs. So they were having a difficult time in both of the market segments where they were doing really good for a long time. They did try pivoting to the Linux ecosystem. They actually bought uh, SUSE Linux, and they released OpenSUSE. Yeah, I vaguely remember these things happening, which, to be fair, they they were sort of like big moments, but only moments. Everyone lost interest very shortly after all these things happened. And eventually in 2011, Novell was acquired. And then later in 2014, they were acquired again by a company called Microfocus International. And at that point, they were just sort of absorbed into that company. So they they stopped being Novell entirely. It's funny because as I quickly skim over the Wikipedia page for Novell, all I'm like, I'm seeing the Linux related stuff and my brain is jumping immediately to the, 
hey, this was another company that thought this is the future. And they invested too much into it. They tried to turn it into a thing and it ended up being, well, I don't want to say it ended up being their downfall, but it kind of was. A lot of companies that went the Linux, Unix route ended up just becoming fodder. Yeah. And then there's Red Hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the one company that just won't seem to go away and somehow almost flourishes-ish. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, they were doing pretty pretty good i don't know if like at this point but definitely at other points in history they were they were killing it yeah i remember red hat actually at this stage in history red hat was super prominent i know when we did the road to osx series i had at least one or two people mention this like hey why didn't you talk about project star trek and i i, I knew about it like i was gonna eventually do an episode on it but I didn't like really include it because it's kind of its own thing. And this is also really interesting because it seems like this had no effect on Apple long term. Like this entire <laughs> this entire project was just sort of like a thing that happened and then everyone moved on. Yeah, it really was. Like obviously Novell probably would have done a lot better in the 90s if this had happened, but like this this didn't really go anywhere like this was never even publicly announced at any point um so there wasn't like a huge amount of effort into it like like i said earlier this was about 20 people working on this for a couple months and then executives talked it out and then it just didn't happen and this didn't really have an effect on the mac platform or the software or really anything whereas all of the starting and stopping on a new Mac operating system that we talked about in the road to OS X that absolutely had an effect on Apple and the Mac. Like it, it really hurt the Mac for a long time that they didn't have a proper next generation upgrade that Microsoft had been doing with windows NT and IBM was kind of doing with OS two, but Apple had to keep stretching their really old classic Mac OS for years because they just couldn't finish anything. Mm -hmm. That absolutely had an effect on Apple, that whole process. But Project Star Trek was kind of just a thing that happened and then, and then everyone quickly moved on. So uh, there are two thoughts that I come away with, or at least two sort of immediate, like the, these are almost like the, the spawning points to more discussion perhaps, but the first is we don't really know, like we, we kind of have some insight into why Apple may not have necessarily decided to move forward on this, but we don't really know enough about why Novell may have chosen not to. And there could have been a lot of reasons for this. Uh, we could, we could speculate all day long, but we don't really know why Novell it ultimately just decided this wasn't a move forward because they probably could have if either of these companies really was assertive about it and the other company was at least okay with the idea they would have done this but it's it, from the sound of it they were both at least like interested but tepid and as a result it just didn't happen yeah the other takeaway is and it's it kind of stems from what you just said apple didn't have 
its next-gen operating system, they were showing off the old thing. I mean, it's super cool that they managed to get the old thing running on an x86 compatible chip, but it's not really that exciting because it's the old thing. Who cares about the right. old thing? The old thing doesn't matter anymore when everybody already looks at it and says, yeah, that's the old thing. Where's something new? And if they didn't have something new, uh, or even if they did have something new, they would have had to make that new thing a a part of this, not the old thing that everyone was already tired of. Right. The Yeah. Like the Mac OS in 1993 was not substantially different than what they released on the first Mac in 1984. Like it was, it was better. Like it had, you know, more applications and it had multitasking that kind of worked and a, a bunch of other stuff, but it was still the same design really. Yeah. So it's just kind of a thing that happened. Cody, do you have anything you want to, you want to plug um, now, now, now that we're done talking about a thing that happened? <laughs> yes. Well, as usual, I I do have a couple of things in the works, but uh, nothing I can announce at the moment. Um, so with that, follow me on the socials. Uh, hit me up on Mastodon. Follow me on Twitter. Pretty much those. Those are at Cody Tombs, right? It's at Cody underscore Tombs on Twitter. Uh, follow me on YouTube also. Yes. Yes, do that. And also TechTales is on Twitter and Mastodon. And all the links for that are at TechTalesShow.com. Also, there's an official TechTales subreddit now. And it's it's basically just a comment section for episodes because podcasts don't have comment sections. And sometimes those are cool. So that's that's where we have that now. And you can discuss episodes as they are released the subreddit is tech tales podcast and i hope you enjoyed listening and we'll be back in your podcast feed soon goodbye everybody mm-hmm.